Imagine having the life of your dreams. Not temporary cash and glory, but happiness and inner peace. Explore new ways to be a creator and take your own journey into greatness. Is it possible? What does it take to make that happen? It takes the person known for extreme results. He's called the cage breaker and the ultimate catalyst. Coming back from the brink of death and now crushing it for himself and his clients, this is your Ultimate Life Podcast with Kellen Flukiger. Hello and welcome to this episode of Your Ultimate Life. Today's the fifth uh, episode covering the near-death experience and the time in the hospital and what not only what happened, because that story may or may not be interesting to you, but what I learned and the reason I'm sharing it is because I find over and over again as a coach, I work with people who struggle with the same things I did, and that is the overwhelming nature of current challenges that are in front of us that are so intense and powerful we can't see a way around them or that are so all-consuming we never we think they'll never be done we'll be in the middle of this thing forever and you even see that on a on a societal level i have been a student of world war ii since i was in grade school i loved reading about the tanks and airplanes and stuff of of all the different armies and you know the mechanics of it all and later about people and something that i noticed that was interesting is that during the during the wartime people got overwhelmed with what was going on to the extent that they made choices that they would not otherwise make. Let me give you some examples. I read some historical accounts and have seen some movies about people who betrayed their country and became Nazi sympathizers and ratted out on their fellow citizens because they got a little bit more ration stuff right now. And so right now in the short term, they're alleviating a problem because the War seems so all-consuming, this will never be op- over. It'll be like this forever. In the historical context, I mean, in, in the future context, we see, well, yeah, it lasted a few more years. The total war was six years. So that happened two years in or one year in, you know, three or four more years. And the whole thing changed. The invaders went home, everything changed. And then all those, excuse me, all those deeds were called to account. People had relationships. Soldiers in foreign countries met and had, you know, relationships with citizens that were there and then went home and there were all kinds of uh, children left without fathers principally. Relationships left incomplete. The majority of them, that happened again in in the U.S. in the Vietnam conflict. I live in Canada now, but at the time I lived in the U.S. And that is the feeling that what's happening right now is all that will ever be. We're so consumed we can't see past it. And I certainly had that feeling then. Uh, and I described in the last episode the hallucinations that I was having, and they they continued even after I left the ICU. So 
Today's episode, episode 703, is about leaving the ICU. What happened finally after all that stuff I described and being able to walk up and down the hall, the day came when I was going to be allowed to move and move to a regular ward. And I was moved back up to the fifth floor, which is where I briefly had started this whole thing, probably uh, 20, 20 something days, 23 or four days before. And I don't think it was the same. I don't know if it was the same room, but it was a private room. So the reason they put me in a private room is because what I what I was had been infected with, even though they knew what it was and the the uh, infection was contained, I was still isolated, uh, not double doors and bio isolated like I was before. Then what I ended up having, I eventually learned what I had, and I didn't understand or know what it was until I was out of the ICU. So I'd been 17 days in a coma and probably another seven in the ICU afterwards. So that's like 24 days total. And I finally was told what I had. What I had contracted somehow was a hard thing to get. I had a necrotizing MRSA, methicillin, pronounced MRSA usually, methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus or something like that. I'm probably saying it wrong. But it was a, a special antibiotic-resistant kind. And <clears throat> it was so aggressive that when they'd had me wired up in the uh, ICU, they were treating me with every high-powered antibiotic antibiotic they had. I learned later that they were giving me the antibiotic of last resort, the most powerful one they had. And that's the reason my veins were collapsing. Uh, a little bit more story about that in a minute. And they, it had been, it was in both lungs and in my bloodstream. And it had been so aggressive that the tubes they had in my neck uh, they they were struggling to get the bacteria count to go down as a sign of improvement, and it wouldn't go down, and they realized that the bacteria had started colonizing in the plastic tubes. It had attacked the tubes, so they had to pull them out of one side and stick them in the other. And that was uh, a sign of the aggressiveness of the bacteria. They told me later a terrifying thing, which scared me. They said the 10-day mortality rate uh, the doctor called it the 10-day kill rate. The 10-day mortality rate of what I had was very high. We talk now as we wind this COVID thing down, or we don't wind it down, but we move it into mainstream. I guess we'll probably have to have vaccinations uh, once a year, once every six months, forever, like we do with flu. I've got a new Omicron vaccine out now as I make this. Um. We talk about a 2 to 3% mortality rate. And what he told me, and this, of course, was pre-COVID, he said the mortality rate or the kill rate of what I had, the 10-day kill rate was 100%. And when he told me that, I just sat in stunned silence. So no wonder I died. No wonder my heart stopped. The 10-day kill rate of what I had was 100%. One of the things I experienced before I left the ICU was daily, they had a ritual of stuff. They poked me with all kinds of needles and took bio signs every, seemed like every five minutes. 
<clears throat> and then the physical therapy, walking and so forth, and the hallucinations. But they had put a, some kind of a wooden block on my wrist to help with all the IVs. And eventually, they, when they left the ICU, they took that off because all the veins in that arm had collapsed and they'd put it in the other one. And it, it was just a disaster. And it was, it was horrifying. They also used to fill me once and sometimes twice a day with a gas. And the purpose of the gas was to make me cough. Now, all of us have been in different places where we smell something that's so horrible we can't imagine, you know, rotting meat, rotting bodies. I had the opportunity once to do some service uh, with a lady who was living a bit as a hoarder and, you know, with the little paths through the house, the apartment, and the kitchen and everything was just overflowing and the fridge sort of worked and it was full of rotting food and opening that fridge was might have been up to that point the most horrifying thing I'd ever, you know, smelled. It was make make you wretch right away. All those things led up to this. One of the things that they did was they would give me a puff of gas. I don't know what it was, but the purpose of the gas was to make you wretch and not vomit per se, but cough like uh, horrific smell can't even comprehend and it did its intended thing cough 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 and they wanted me to cough and to cough up stuff because that's how they were getting the dead tissue and bacteria out of my lungs and so the purpose of this once or twice a day was to just cough my brains out and cough everything out of my system that i could so that was another joyful experience that that we did to 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 help with the healing. Now, I said that just before I'd left the ICU, they got in a feeding tube. What I didn't tell you yet was that, that one day after that feeding tube went in, it quit working. Now, the trauma that was associated with getting that feeding tube in just horrified me. I thought, oh no, we got to do this again. So we, you know, gritted up and got it in again a second time. And I could feel when they fed me, enjoy, uh, my my recollection is always being hungry, always being hungry. And so Joy, ever trying to help me, she would always harass the nurses for more food, more food, more food. And so they would would give me more. And I was obviously atrophied. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, when I left the hospital, eventually I'd lost 35 pounds. So it was clear that I wasn't uh, getting overfed by any stretch, and I couldn't eat. Uh, so this was all first intravenously during the coma, and then feeding tube. As soon as I, as soon as I came out of that, so the second feeding tube went in, and that was drama. And I was still having these hallucinations. They weren't quite as bad and intense and terrifying as the ones in the ICU. They were still bad. I'll give you a funny example. I I hallucinated that there was at night. So the lights were dim and my door was closed at night. To allow me, I asked, why are you closing my door? Because I felt imprisoned and, you know, well, to give you some privacy and to let you sleep. 
because of course the nurses are out there da -da -da, walking around at night. I swore I heard conspiratorial conversation about spying on me, about breaking into my house, about trying to find incriminating stuff. And I don't know why I thought all that, except that earlier, many years before that, I, there was a time in my life where I had stuff in the house that, you know, substances in the house that would have got me arrested. So anyway, hallucinating about all that sort of stuff <clears throat> and starving and that. So anyway, the second feeding tube broke again, like one day and quit working. I don't know, broke, quit working. So out came that one. And then the third one. And each time it did get a little easier because I kind of figured out, you know, the rhythm of getting something crammed down your throat and in your stomach, up your nose and etc. The circus was that during the time I was in the regular part of the hospital, we had to put the feeding tube in five times. Now, I wouldn't recommend having a feeding tube stuck in you for any reason. It's not fun. Or at least the way it happened to me felt hugely traumatic and difficult. Maybe they've got better ways now. I don't know. But five times because for some reason it kept malfunctioning. So I wasn't sure if that was just my cross to bear or if that is a, a regular thing. Well, I don't know. And I said, why don't you call the manufacturer? What's wrong with these tubes? So in the time I was in this other room, this regular room, I was always in isolation. And one of the other interesting hallucinations was that I, that I had a, a room all to myself. And then there was a door that went in the hallway. And right next to the door that went in the hallway, there was the door to the bathroom. I had a private bathroom. Some One night I was convinced that they had built a door, another door, into that bathroom from the hall. So that people from the hall could use that bathroom. And it made sense to me. I thought, well, you know, maybe some other people need to use it in my hallucinatory state, because obviously it was supposed to be mine, because I was in isolation still. And they didn't have to do as much suiting up, but they did gown up to come in and see me, because I had that MRSA, and MRSA requires that kind of protocol in the hospital. Anyway, so in the middle of the night, one night at 2.30 or so in the morning, I went and knocked on the door that went out into the hall from my room. I knocked on it like I needed permission to go out there. And the door opened, and it was a nurse or a doctor, like surprise, like, hello, what do you need? And I asked, can I use the bathroom? And they, they couldn't figure out why I was asking because it was my bathroom. But because I was convinced there was another door and I'd heard the construction and I was sure that that was happening, I said, well, I just wanted to know if someone was in there because there's a light coming out from under the door and there's another door in there now. And they were completely flabbergasted, couldn't figure out what I was talking about. But yeah, oh yeah, you can you, no, there's not another door. It's your bathroom. You can go in there. No, there's no construction going on out here. And so I, I didn't believe him, but I went in the bathroom and the the light that was on was a light that stayed on all the time so I could find the bathroom, of course. But anyway, that was the kind of thing that I was uh, seeing and, and convinced was happening. And then all this conspiracy stuff, too. 
And as you might expect, the days were interminable. And in fact, at one point, there was a clock on the wall, and I was sure that the clock was running backwards and that the numbers were trading places because I just knew that time was passing in in negative directions, right? That it was taking that long. And when Joy came to visit me during the day, I would ask her if if the clock you know, had a distorted face, kind of like a Salvador Dali clock. And it didn't, of course, and the numbers weren't doing anything. And, you know, one day I just knew they'd changed the clock because now the clock looked regular. And, of course, it was me. The clock never was changed. And Joy was an angel. She did her best to deal with all that, and the nurses ignored it. And I, I sh- again, share all these hallucinations with you because it leads up to the important part. Uh, this this episode 703, Leaving the ICU, talks about that and, and the time that I spent upstairs in the regular room, which I left the ICU about a week after I came out of coma, about 24, and I was in the hospital about 30 days. So I probably spent six days up here in this room. Now, that is an incredibly short period of time, and we'll talk about that in a minute. To start with, it was estimated I might spend several weeks recovering, but then getting ahead of myself. So with the feeling starving, increasing the food, changing the feeding tube literally every day because it quit working as soon as they got it in and used it once for whatever reason, and I'll never know the answer to that, but I know I had to do that fun thing five times. I came to the conclusion that I would never get out of here never get out of here. I ask them, you know, what, and I'm, you know, I'm still on oxygen. Uh, you know, I, I'm on oxygen after leaving the ICU. I was still on oxygen and they didn't know how long that was going to be. That could be weeks. And I could barely, still barely get out of bed. And the only thing I'd been able to do in the ICU was clutch that dummy and walk down the hall and back. Um, and so, you know, the idea of what to do to, I, you know, I couldn't eat yet. I hadn't been eating at all. I was still using feeding tubes and everything else. And the idea of getting out of the hospital was like forever away. And I couldn't get anybody to tell me anything. And of course, they weren't telling me anything because they didn't know. I had no idea how long this was going to take for me to recover. <clears throat> so where that led me was, even though I had was learning in the ICU to simply love what was going on and go with it, and make the most out of it and choose to be happy anyway, I began to get paranoid. I'll never get out of here. I'll never get out of here. Never, never. I can't find out anything. They're never going to let me go. And of course, that played right into the conspiracies I was hearing about searching my house and trying to find information on me and all the rest. And as a, as a person who struggled for decades with depression, and feeling not good enough, I guess none of that's surprising because I was just sure they'd find a bunch of stuff that meant I should go to jail. And I was convinced the minute I left the hospital, I would be carted off to incarceration. And how 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 peculiar is all that, right? So this is the point of this episode. Every day there was a physical therapy action and Finally, I could didn't use the t- a tackling dummy anymore. I could use one of those walkers and, and shuffle, right? Finally, I could shuffle out of my room and, you know, a little bit there. And eventually, I could shuffle all the way 
around the nurse's station, uh, which might have been 100-something feet, right? And so that little progress every day, and they were monitoring that, and the coughing stuff, and all of those things kept going, trying to get me healthy. But I was, I was just panicked. I was absolutely panicked. I can't learn anything. I'll never get out of here. I'm going to die in here. And it doesn't matter because as soon as I get out, they're going to arrest me anyway for whatever conspiratorial things they found. And so this was the opportunity for the rest of the divine intervention. I'd had those three conversations with God. The, the book of context, and if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read both of them. Meeting God at the Door, Meeting God at the Door, and the book of context. Uh, I'll show them to you because I think it's valuable if you want all the details, more, even more details. Meeting God at the door, it looks like this. And the book of context contains the rest of that second conversation, and it looks like this, the book of context. So here's why that's important. In this state of great alarm, completely panicked that I'll never get out of here, not knowing what's going on, all of a sudden... Divine inspiration came to me. Why don't you use the context principles? Right? Because the whole book of context is about changing beliefs. Well, I had some pretty paranoid and strong beliefs about never getting out of here. I can't find out what's going on and I'm going to die in here. And they're going to arrest me anyway. And I thought, all right. So I was inspired, directed intuition to use the book of context. And so here's what that looks like. The first step is when you're finding yourself intimidated, held back, buried, afraid, you can't do something, just stop for a moment. And the whole purpose of this is not to fight with your beliefs. Step one is just write down what you believe. Now, I couldn't write, so instead of writing, I said them all in my mind. I believe with all my heart I will never get out of here. I believe I don't know what's going on. They won't tell me anything. I can't get any information. I'm doomed. I believe that with all my heart. There's magic and sorcery going on here with clocks and drugs and spy cameras and everything else, and I'll never get out of here. I believe that with all my heart. Okay, that's fine. So I listed all those things. When I said them out loud, they sounded kind of crazy, but that's really what I believed. Now, step two of this belief change process is to then just ask yourself a simple question. And that's this, what else could I believe? I don't. It's important to not fight with the beliefs you just listed because you hold them, you believe them, and they're strong, especially in situations that have kept you captive for long periods of your life. So the second thing is to just, in, in sort of playing a game, what could I believe? And sometimes that brings up all kinds of resistance. So you can also ask, what could someone else believe if, to get it, make it not personal? But anyway, I just want, well, what could I believe? Well, I could believe that they're doing the best they can. I could believe I can't find anything out because they don't know anything yet in terms of what it takes to, to heal, how long it's going to be, how many weeks am I going to be here uh, what, what are the hallmark signs of healing? Like what has to happen? And, you know, when can I eat, you know, all of those things, when will the tubes come out? When will the oxygen come off? 
when, 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 when. I could believe they're doing the best they can and they'll tell me as soon as they know something. They're not hiding from me and they're, they just don't know. I could believe all that. So that's step two. The third part is to say, okay, I don't believe it. I understand that. But if I did believe this new stack or if a person believed that new stack, what would I do? Well, the answer to that always comes immediately because if you had this completely, you're acting according to your real beliefs, the pretend beliefs, the new stack, it's easy to say what you do. Well, if I really believe they're doing the best they can and they'll tell me as soon as they know and they're trying to get me healed and all the rest, then I quit worrying. I wouldn't be worried. I'd enjoy every day. I'd lean into this experience and learn what it's like to have my body be totally broken and die and then gradually heal. I would just have fun when Joy's here and I'd be an entirely different experience. And that three steps, this is what I do believe, this is what I could believe, what would I do? It created this whole energetic shift in my body. I could feel, well, I could believe that. I know I don't, I don't, I don't, but I could. Somebody else might. And that thought just sort of rolled around in my head over and over again. And so I thought, okay, so after that day's walk and this day, I was actually able to walk out of the ICU. This is the second day I'd walked out of the intensive care unit, you know, like out of those doors, out of the intensive care unit and in the main hall of the hospital a little ways the day before. And then this day I walked even further and it was the longest I'd ever walked. And of course it was with a walker and shuffling and resting and everything else. Um, and that was just, I was still on oxygen and still on, you know, feeding tubes and everything else, but I, I could at least walk. So when I got back from that walk, I, I collapsed into the bed and I thought, okay, I know what I'd do if I believe this new stuff, which I don't believe, but I wonder, I wonder if I can dive into that belief. So I've been a meditator for decades. The first five books I wrote were a series on meditation, and you can read those on Amazon too if you like. Uh, maybe you already meditate and maybe you're great at it. But anyway, uh, I, I was very experienced and a few episodes ago, I told you how meditation allowed me to know that I was dying. So I went into a, a deep meditation as best I could in my busted state and was thinking about those possibilities. They're doing the best they can. They'll tell me as soon as they know. I'll get out as soon as humanly possible. They want me to heal. I started focusing on that and visualizing the truth of healing and getting out getting better. It's right here. It's right now. I'm going to change this belief. And I didn't have to change it, but the belief that I had was causing me hallucinations and heartache and paranoia and to see, you know, clocks and just crazy stuff that drove total and clutching, gripping fear in my heart. I knew there was a set of beliefs I could have. I don't or didn't then. But I thought, I wonder. And if I, I knew if I had those, then I'd be happy and it'd be okay. And I thought, okay, I wonder if I can do anything about this. 
because I have this book of context process to change beliefs. Well, I'm going to play. So I decided to play with that. So I got back from the walk. I laid there and I went into meditation, visualizing, healing, and release. Testing, essentially testing this process that I'd been given in this divine revelation uh, a, a couple of weeks, three weeks earlier. I'm testing this here. I'm testing almost four weeks, I guess. I'm testing it to see. I'm going to put it to the test. And I'm going to tell you tomorrow in the final episode what happened after that test and what happened later. And because this episode's long enough, what I want to assure you is regardless of having a bug that kills you in 10 days, regardless of dying and coming back to life, regardless of feeling like I was starving and having terrible experiences with feeding tubes and oxygen masks, and regardless of not having eaten anything for a month, regardless of being shriveled up, and regardless of all of those things, you can still choose your reaction to surroundings. And this is what I was experimenting with. I wonder if it's possible to change these beliefs. And in a preview of tomorrow, I'll tell you that it is. And the miracle that took place after that meditation cannot be explained. Cannot be explained. And I'll share it all with you tomorrow. What I want to make sure, or in the next episode, what I want to make sure that I leave you with, though, is there's nothing special about me. I'm not more important or interesting than you or anybody else. You have gifts and talents. You have the ability to live that life of purpose, prosperity, and joy, and you have it today. It can start right now. And I'll tell you how that unfolded for me in the next episode. Take what's here. Reflect in your own life where you'd like to change some beliefs that are holding you still, that are causing you to hallucinate either actually or in your heart, that are keeping you from being all that you could be, from doing all the good that you could do and from having as much fun as you could have. I know you can, and I know also, no matter what else can happen, you have a right to and can create your ultimate life. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope that you take it deeply into your heart and decide for yourself how you can create anything you desire. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback and topic suggestions. Until tomorrow, this is Your Ultimate Life with host Kellen Flukiger. Ground.